kids behind the bus time. From the NHRL studios in Norwalk, Connecticut, this is Behind the Bots, the podcast that brings you the stories of the builders behind the bots. I'm Chris. I'm Luke. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Kyle. And today on the podcast, we've got official match steward Mike Jeffries. We'll wrap up the show with this week's installment of Robots Around the World. If you like our show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, CastBox, Player FM, and Podbean. You can follow us on Facebook at Behind the Bots and tell a friend. We really appreciate your support. Time for this week's Combat Robotics News. I have two news items for you today. First up, catch live robot combat this weekend in Georgia and Minnesota. In Georgia, Turnabot will be hosting a 150-gram sportsman tournament on Saturday in Dunwoody. Turnabot fights in an open-air arena and has extra robots on hand if you want to borrow a robot and try out driving for yourself. Sounds like a super fun event, so if you're in Georgia this Saturday, make a plan to check it out. And in Minnesota, the Dollar Hobbies Combat Robot Club is back in action this Sunday at the Dollar Hobbies store in Woodbury, where they'll be fighting fairy weights and ant weights. To check out details on these events and more, check out robotcombatevents.com. And finally, BattleBots This Week published its first video in a series of new, in-depth, behind-the-scenes videos with Pete Abramson, a.k.a. the Bot Whisperer. In this new series, which publishes to YouTube, Pete takes fans into the pits for special conversations with interesting builders. In his first episode, Out Now, Pete catches up with Endgame to find the secret to their success. It's a great series, so definitely check it out. And that's it for this week's news. All right, now uh, let's take a look back at episode 9 of BattleBots, which aired this past Thursday. We saw a Florida man catch fire, our first successful judges challenge on a flat-out bad call. The Big Dill give us its best performance yet. Ribot fall to O and three, the birth and death of Sordios, another spicy meatball, and Endgame squeak out another victory. Your thoughts on episode nine, Kyle? Do you want to start us off? Yes, episode nine was a lot of fun. I thoroughly enjoyed this episode. My kids did too. I got to watch this one with them. All in all, I think that the BattleBots team is getting really good at producing these episodes with this format. And can we talk just a minute about that pizza intro at the beginning and how phenomenal that was? That was like um, hearkening back to like the the skits that they used to do. I absolutely loved it. It was weird. It was wacky. It was so much fun. And Anna is hilarious on screen. I loved it. Yeah, it's um, I love to see BattleBots embracing its weirdness. Like it is a. It is a quirky sport with quirky people and the fans are quirky and they, they deserve quirky content. Yes. Like I, I think that there's this, there, there was like a tendency maybe even last season, I would say like to kind of really professionalize battle bots, you know, like everyone's wearing suits and like, it's very grand. It's big, you know, it's in Vegas. It's like, I don't know, like really trying to go full sport. And it's like, there's so much comedy in the show that we are seeing this season that I love. Like, I think that that, that direction is, is such a smart direction for BattleBots. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's great. I mean, I, it, it like really shows more of the, the culture of the sport, which, which I really appreciate. I've heard of a cold open, but never a cold pizza open. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, thoughts on Sordios? Kyle, I called it. You did. <laughs> Sorry, Chris, I cut you off. I was just going to say, I don't have any thoughts on Sordios. <laughs> you don't? No. Wait, why, Chris? Did you guys read... Did you guys read uh, Zach's apology post? Oh, my God. It was heartbreaking. No, he... What? Yeah, he wrote a whole apology post what? to the what? fans. He doesn't He doesn't owe anybody an apology. I Here's the thing. Okay, the, the mouth-breathing Ice Road Trucker fans just, like, like immediately jumped onto Facebook.com, okay? And they were just like... They, um, did. they were like... You know what? Like Scorpios is afraid to to face Sawblade, so they just threw that match by putting some stupid piece of metal on their robot. You know, like of course it was never going to work. That's the dumbest thing I ever heard. And it's like, okay, all right. A, finish your beetle. B, get off of Facebook. Like C, like you don't know anything. Stop it. You know, and like for that to affect Zach and Diana so much, like freaking kills me. Like I thought, yeah, I thought that the, I thought that the strategy was pretty smart. You know, like. Use it as a spear. Go in there, try and like sever something, like jam up like the uh, the hammer saw. It's it's not a bad idea. Yeah, and they put the back end of the sword facing downward, which meant that was the serrated edges. So they were trying to catch up on some belts and rip into that and shred into that. Great idea, all things considered, but also just uh, really hard to execute when apparently your front mount magnets on your forks don't work and you're tipping and flipping all over the place. Lindsay as our as our resident Sabe, you know, thoughts on that that fight. <laughs> um I you know, I'll be honest, I feel really bad now that they have gotten I mean, I haven't seen the I haven't seen the apology post, and I'll be honest, I have the battle box group muted because uh it is just sometimes a toxic sinkhole. Uh, that I don't need. Um, so I haven't really seen a lot of the fan, I imagine, backlash to this decision. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, I get it. Like, they probably saw this fight and they were like, we don't have the reach and they're probably going to get under us and let's, you know, try something crazy. We're a fun team. You know, we we take it seriously, but we also like to have fun. We have this, you know, this relic in our possession. Let's uh, let's try to go for it. Like, you know, I I can understand that. Um, I don't I don't know that anything that they did would have ended up any differently. <laughs> like whether they went um, with a regular configuration, whether they went with a sword. Like I think Sawblaze was gonna win that regardless but um man like let's just have some fun with it like why do we have to go attack people because they made a decision that maybe you don't agree with yeah i i think that one of the uh what one of the defining characteristics of scorpios is that they care so much about this sport like they are the quintessential super fans and when they see the fans saying that they're disappointed in a fight, like it really affects them on a personal level. And that sucks. Like, um, like yeah. you gotta, you just like, like, you know, ignore the haters, you know, like you, you went for it. Like that's, that's so much better than, than not, not trying. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. They wanted to put on a show. Can you blame them? Yeah, absolutely. 
Now, uh, one of the big things that we saw from the prediction cards last week were that there were a lot of people who got six out of seven fights correctly. Um, so that suggests that, um, you know, even even though, you know, Scorpios and Sables, super highly anticipated match, most people um, thought that it was going to go to Sables. In fact, we had 58 people send us seven predictions last week. Four people managed to call all seven fights correctly. Those people were Elizabeth Nightmare, great name, by the way, multi-time prediction winner Francois Froll-Pelsier, our friend and Robocast co-host Sam Elliott, and Semi Bandali. Congratulations to you all. The big upset of the night was Jackpot versus Ribot, with the majority of people incorrectly predicting that Ribot would win. Now, Kyle, as an FYI, you managed to call six out of the seven fights correctly uh, this week, similarly falling into the Ribot trap. Um, all right, well, let's get into uh, this week's predictions with our own Kyle Kroos. Uh, starting with the first fight of the night, Kyle, are you prepared? Oh, yeah, let's do it. Okay. We're going to start off with a battle between two polarizing captains, Riptide versus Captain Shredderator. <laughs> oh, that was generous. Uh, the winner of this match is going to be Riptide. This is going to be a pretty easy predi- predictions card as far as it, it seems right now. Okay, all right. We've got a battle between two prehistoric animals, Mammoth versus Death Roll. Oh, this is such a fun one. I actually, I'm going to call it for Mammoth. Uh, It could go either way, but uh, I'm going to call it for Mammoth. All right, our resident contrarian. I love it. Um, Okay, next up, we've got two NHRL robots, Banshee versus Emulsifier. Kyle, your prediction. It's got to go to Emulsifier. They got to win one. Those guys, those poor guys. Hmm. Okay, uh, next up, we've got the undefeated Copperhead versus the winless Kraken. Yeah, sorry, new Kraken. You're going up against a ridiculously powerful spinner in Copperhead and a team that's just dialed in. Okay, Uh, next up, the ambitious dual horizontal Horizon facing off against Shatter. Uh, I think this one has to go to Shatter. Okay, do you want to say more? Uh, just a, you know, robot that's been around a little bit longer. The hammer hits really hard and, uh, horizons, a new concept, new idea. Um, and it looks like there's a lot of nice juicy parts up top for them to get smashed. Uh, I mean, uh, I feel like horizons dialing it in, you know, as their fights go along. I mean, maybe we see a monster horizon come out and just start battering the side of shatter. What, what do you think, Kyle? Highly doubtful, but it'd be cool to see. All right. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, on to our next fight of the night. Two verts, uh, Ominous, which was terrible, and Shredder Bro, which is incredible. Uh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> Full disclosure, I'm, I'm on Team Shredder. I've got to obviously pull for that. Uh, all right. Ominous versus Shredder Bro. Uh, two meticulously engineered robots. Your prediction here. <laughs> um, I think that this is going to end up being a Shredder Bro fight. Okay. All right. Someone has faith in us. That's great. All right. Uh, and then finally, our main event of the night, Whiplash versus Monsoon. Kyle, your prediction. Oh, man. So this is the only one that I find really, really challenging in my brain to like game out. But I'm going to go ahead and say Whiplash. Okay, good. Uh, why Why did you land on Whiplash? Um. Well, A, they really need the win. That helps. And B, um, I think that once they start getting that spinner hitting the uh, hitting the ground, um, not only will Trey cry because his box floor is getting all jacked up, uh, but uh, Monsoon is going to um, 
not last very long once that starts happening. Okay. Now, uh, if you think you're smarter than a Kyle, go to our Facebook page to send us your predictions later today. After the break, we'll return with Match Steward Mike Jeffries. This week on the podcast, we have a very special first-time guest, BattleBots Match Steward Mike Jeffries. Mike is a longtime combat robotics builder, best known for his hard-hitting modular bot, Bombshell, which appeared on BattleBots in Seasons 2, 3, and 4. Mike returned to the competition in Season 7 as the official liaison between builders and production, helped oversee the process where builders can formally challenge a judge's ruling that they think they should have won. We're catching up with Mike this week after Malice Captain Bunny Sariel became the first BattleBots builder to successfully challenge a judge's call under the new system. We're looking forward to chatting all things Bombshell, BattleBots, and challenges in the hour ahead. So welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, thank you for having me here. I've been looking forward to doing this for a long time. Been listening to the podcast basically since I got back into the sport a while ago and uh, should be fun. That's amazing. Mike, the feeling is so mutual. Like, um, there, but when we started the podcast, like we listed out all of the builders who we wanted to talk to. And, uh, you were one of those builders where it was like, oh, someday we're going to get up to like the level where we can call up Mike Jeffries and see if we, he'll come on the show. You know what I mean? Like it was, um, one of those like big gets, you know, like, uh, so I'm, I'm glad that we're, we're doing this. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm really, really excited about this. Um, we also got so many questions from the audience. Um, they have so many questions about your experience, um, both on BattleBots as a builder and uh, this this past season as the match steward. Questions about how uh, the show works behind the scenes. So we're going to jump straight into them um, with a series of thought-provoking questions from BattleBots superfan Alexander Archer. Mike, are you prepared? I'm ready. Okay, good. Let's All see right. how spicy some of these get. <laughs> I hope so. Yes. Uh, Alexander starts just, he's roaring right out of the gate. What happened to Bombshell after season four, Mike? So I don't even know what happened to Bombshell in season four. So <laughs> for those that don't know the backstory there, season three happened. I'm just going to leave it at that. Season three happened. Yes. And then about a month after filming, I got Bell's palsy. So basically one half of my face shut off Mm. and i spent the next three months drinking through a straw because i couldn't actually form a seal or anything like that and one of the potential causes for bell's palsy is stress so sit there look at what's going on in my life i've got a full-time job captaining a BattleBots team i'm helping run the spark organization lots of different sources of stress one of those pays hmm Right. So I took a big step back from robot combat as a whole for a while there. Got into blacksmithing, recovered, and now I'm basically back to normal. Yeah. But after 2018, I wasn't really involved at all in the bombshell build for season four. I know there were some issues with the brushless motors not living up to promised specs for the drivetrain. There were some bearing issues in the gearboxes. But it was a lot of little things that mostly stems from an issue that a lot of teams run into. We're trying a bunch of new cool things and suddenly nothing works. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess physically like bombshell still exists in a garage somewhere, right? I mean, you guys didn't throw it away, right? Like 
there, there's a lot of bombshells spread around Georgia right now. <laughs> so I've got a good chunk of season two bombshell downstairs. There's the chassis that we used for all of our fights with the tombstone chunks taken out of it and some of the melted urethane from the complete control fight. That I'm never getting rid of. That I'm keeping forever. Uh, I've got you know some armor panels and a lot of spare parts and some busted motors. Uh, season three bombshell, I believe, is in, in Randy's garage right now. Because it was at a local maker space, the maker station, but they had to adjust the space, so we had to get that out of there because there was nowhere for it to live. Season four bombshell, I believe, is mostly with Matt. Hmm. Got it. Got it. Now, uh, no one asked about blacksmithing, and I'm very interested in this, so I'm gonna just inter, you know, I'm gonna interject my own questions instead of Alexander Archer's questions. So, like, tell me more about blacksmithing. Like, what are you making, like, as a blacksmith? And, uh, like, t- tell me more, like, what, how, how did you get into this hobby? So, again, right around the time where, you know, Bell's palsy, facial paralysis, all that sort of fun, it's like, all right, I need to find a hobby that is not stressful. And for me, it's hard to be stressed out when you're hitting something with a hammer as hard as you can. So started playing around with blacksmithing, ended up taking a class at a local studio, Goat and Hammer. They're fantastic people. They did Forge and Fire and won the Master and Apprentice episode. Great folks. And that led to building a forge at home. So there's an entire blacksmithing studio in the garage right now. And you know, making my own hammers, making knives, making artistic pieces, a little bit of everything. But uh, probably the coolest stuff are some of the blades I've made. I did a camp knife that kind of has a kukri style design that's about an eight or a nine inch long blade that I was able to split two by fours on end with it. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, I feel like out of, out of all of us here on the pod, I feel like Chris was is like probably our most likely future blacksmith. You know, Chris, tell, tell me if I'm wrong. Um, future blacksmith? Wait, are, are you an existing blacksmith, Chris? Well, if by blacksmithing you mean actually forging something with heat and hammering it out yes well no i'm not a blacksmith (laughs) but i will take a piece of metal and grind it into a shape you know what why don't you all just shut up (laughs) (laughs) all right listen chris i i'll tell you this is true um i have been searching for months now for like a really good anvil you know for you like i'm i'm gonna get you into the sport right you know like uh, you got you you gotta you gotta try this this out sure anvils are such a weird world so actually, this oh. is this is a great little diversion. Good. So uh, I've got two anvils downstairs. So first one I bought from local dude that collects anvils and old blacksmith equipment. That wasn't nearly the fun, interesting story. Second anvil, I'm looking around on Craigslist back when people used Craigslist to find stuff, to try and find a decent condition anvil. Found this 80 pound anvil out in middle of nowhere, South Carolina. So. I drive out, three-hour drive, something like that from my house, and pull up to what essentially looks like an empty field. (laughs) So drive in, park, start wandering around, eventually see a trailer like parked back in the woods, and yell out to greet the guy to get his attention. And the first question I get asked is, are you a cop? That is not the question you want to hear when you've got a couple hundred bucks in cash sitting in your wallet <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. So I bought the anvil and left as quickly as I could. <laughs> as quickly as you can with an 80 pound anvil. I mean, you, you can move pretty quick when that's the first question you get asked and you've got some motivation. 
<laughs> That's great. That's awesome. All right. Um, okay. Back to Alexander Archer's uh, questions. Second question uh, of this multi-part question. What convinced you to become BattleBots' official match steward? At the core of it, I wrote the job descriptions. That helped. Okay. So once I came back into Robot Combat, I started helping out with a bunch of different things online. So I did a bit of stuff with Slamo, kind of just remote advising for Craig. And then very quickly got pulled into rules updates and judging criteria updates for BattleBots since they knew I wasn't going to be actively competing. So there wasn't really that bias issue of me overly weighing the criteria towards whatever I wanted to do. Mm. And as I'm going through and helping with all these updates, there was that spot of, well, you know, we're basically going to have you as kind of a backup judge if one of the judges gets sick or something like that. At least that's the general vibe I was getting. And then season six happens. And all the controversy around, you know, Tantrum, Hydra, Minotaur, Witch Doctor. And there's this push from some of the teams that they really want some means of being able to look at a judge's decision again. So work with Greg, Trey, Peter, all the BattleBots folks, start coming up with what this role would be. And we eventually come to what it is now, and it's like, all right, well, you've got the job. That's awesome. Uh, this is a great segue into Alexander's next question. Like, basically, how does the match steward work? Like, we saw it on TV on Thursday. Many of the super fans have read through the uh, the rule book, but for those who haven't, you know, like how how does it work uh, exactly? You know, like as as match steward. So, without going into too many details on stuff that happens over the course of filming, the core function is. End of a match, judge's decision gets read out. When that happens, you might just, if you're keen-eyed enough, notice Greg wandering over to the other team to ask them a question real quick. They're letting him know that they want to appeal the fight or not. Then we, did, we didn't have exactly how we were going to film some of this stuff figured out. But then they'd come over and push the green match steward button. They didn't bother airing that with this one. But in front of me, when I'm at the arena, there's a green button. It used to be the green square ready button that the team come over, comes over and pushes. And that's officially locking in their appeal. I mean, they already did, but the team saying yes to Greg, it doesn't really look great on camera versus push the big green button. So once that happens, for the Malice Valkyrie fight, what we did is end of the session, I went over to the pits, met with both captains. They gave their arguments for why they thought they should win the fight by the judging criteria. And then once that was done, I went back arena side and basically cut off all contact with anyone related to the fight. Because part of the way we structured the rules is each team gets to make their arguments with the other team present for the sake of fairness. So then I have to go not talk to anyone about any of it so I can keep both arguments nice and fresh. Once the judges are ready, I go meet with the judges, explain the arguments both teams are making, and then we review the fight footage as many times as necessary to really go through the match, figure out what really happened, and look at the claims the teams are making. At that point, the teams can, or the judges can decide to either change their score or decline to rescore the fight. So I think if I remember the, the scorecards, Derek decided not to rescore because he got it right the first time in his opinion. So he didn't rescore. Then Fawn and Lisa did decide to change their scores. 
So I'll take those, hand them over to Greg, and then we do whatever we end up doing for the fight. So for this fight, we actually filmed how the results were revealed a couple different ways. In this case, they went with the Chris and Kenny edit. There's footage somewhere of me actually standing in the pits between Lucy and Bunny, announcing the decision and handing over the winner's pog. But I think from a TV standpoint, that didn't really work as well as we were hoping it would. Yeah. And then the results are official. I'm, I'm assuming you, you had to like uh, wrestle the pog out of Lucy's hands, you know? Is that right? Well, so I think how it worked is once the appeal was declared, Greg took the pog back mm. or kept the pog. So I had the winner's pog in my pocket from that moment until the handover. Got it. Got it. Um, Alexander has two other questions, not about match stewarding. So let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, Alexander's question, would you ever compete on the show again? As a builder? I don't, I don't think it's likely I'll be competing on the show again as a builder. For me, that's mostly kind of an ethical issue. Hmm. Like beyond that, I'd have to sit out an entire year before I'd be able to compete anyway. I, I don't think it would be great to be a BattleBots official and then go and compete on BattleBots in general. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and then final question from Alexander. Which bots have impressed you this season? Ooh, there's some fun ones there. So for those that have known some of my smaller robots well, you know I'm a fan of aggressive control bots. So it's hard to start this list without putting Claw Viper right at the top of it. Just watching Absolutely. that thing this season has been absolutely amazing yeah so they're probably like the team that jumped out at me the most as being like wow this is beyond what i was expecting uh on a completely different side of things huge this season has impressed the heck out of me so one of the issues it always seemed like they were having is the weapon works everything on huge works but it's not really able to control the fight it can't dictate the pace because it was a little bit cumbersome. This year, it seems like they've got everything dialed in to the point where Huge is actually able to control the flow of the match. And I think at the core, when it comes to BattleBots, if you can control the flow of the fight, you're going to win. That's cool. Claw Viper, Huge, these are great. You know, others. Shredit Bro, I'm assuming, you know. Uh, I, I did love the upgrades to Shredit Bro. Good. There, there's there's some thoughts I've got on Shredit Bro that I don't, can't really go into yet. Okay. But I, I love the new look of the shre- new look of Shredit Bro. The weapon looks amazing. It yeah. is so terrifying sounding in person. Like that that's one of those weapons where you just know when everything's working, it is going to be beastly. Uh, Horizon, I love Horizon. It's such a wacky design. The fact that they turned up and it actually works at the heavyweight scale is amazing. Uh, I'm trying to think, Teratops. I got to give Ben some serious credit here. Teratops for a essentially a rookie builder with a rookie robot. I know they built a couple of smaller robots in the past that they didn't make it to events with, but they came up with this kind of odd weapon concept. Showed up, everything worked. Yeah, and one of the things they did, I think that really paid off for them is they came up with a wacky idea. So they wrapped their wacky idea in a bunch of stuff they know works. Mm. And I think that's the key to not having a miserable first event. Cause if you show up with a bunch of new different things that nobody really knows how it all plays together, you're going to be troubleshooting things constantly. Yeah. They just needed to get that one different thing working right. And they did. 
We're going to uh, switch gears and uh, get into a good series of questions here from BattleBot superfan Ryder Lee Angle. Um, Ryder Lee Angle asks a good hypothetical. If you were to make a Swiss Army robot again, what weapon configurations would it have this time around? So if I were doing it again, the two I'd only bother really with two weapons. So I'd keep with the vert because I love the vert we had for Bombshell Season 2. And then I would build a working version of the lifter we brought to Season 2. That is kind of my big regret with Season 2 is we didn't get the lifter working right. And that was a case of we didn't quite estimate how much friction we were going to have in the worm gear train we were using for it. And we just weren't able to get quite the lift we wanted. But if you've seen my 30-pound robot Nyx with that lifter and all the acrobatics it can do, still, as far as I know, one of the only lifters that can gyro dance. And... I want to do. I'd want to do that on the heavyweight scale. Very cool. Uh, related question from Riderly Angle: Was the decision to make Bombshell go from a modular bot to just a vert a decision made just out of how hard it must have been to maintain the bot with the different configurations, or was it a meta choice that you thought the vert would just be the best option? Uh, it wasn't actually either of those. So going into season three, this was after there was a year with no show. So 2017, no deal. Going into 2018, we found out that filming was on and the show had been renewed on Discovery too late in the year relative to when we'd have to ship to build the new bombshell we wanted to build. Hmm. So we essentially looked at what we had time-wise, what we had part-wise, and figured out, all right, our best option is to basically turn the vert module into a dedicated robot. Smart, smart. And then we made the mistake of trying a bunch of new stuff in that all of which didn't work. Uh, we went from the dual short mags for our vertical disc that was bulletproof to a big brushless outrunner that we never really got dialed in, even with the help of the Minotaur team, who probably spent at least a full day working on our brushless settings to try and get things working for us. And then we made the mistake a couple other teams that year made of getting the 48-volt amp flow motors and the Victor BBs the 48 volt amp flows would catch fire if you ran them at their rated specs and mm. the victory bbs would also die if you ran them at their rated specs that for that particular batch of them so it was just disaster after disaster after disaster mm. yeah um back to questions about the match steward uh, steven egert wants to know looking back are there any moments from previous seasons that you either competed in or watched as a fan where you wish a match steward had existed at the time. I was going to suggest the Yeti versus Bombshell fight from 2018 being one, but somehow I feel that might have worked against you in the six-way Rumble. Your thoughts? Uh, I think in the Rumble, it probably wouldn't have changed too much, just because the judging criteria was a little weird that season. And I think judging criteria in a Rumble in general is difficult, because you're potentially spreading a very limited pool of points among more than two robots. So I don't really like using rumbles as an important match, as funny as that might be for me to say specifically. But on the Bombshell Yeti fight, at the end of that match, I was basically thinking, all right, we won the first two minutes and 55 seconds of that uh, by a bit, and then our drivetrain caught fire. And that probably is what cost us. And I don't think if we'd appealed, had that system existed, it would have changed that at all. Uh, I mean, you know Hydra Tantrum last year, they'd have appealed that, and potentially down to little nuances of, like, was Tantrum's weapon actually down, or was it still working? 
could have flipped that fight. But without the system in place and without the rules accounting for it, it's hard to know. Yeah. Um, Scott Armand has a question about Thursday's episode. You know, looking back on Thursday's episode, did the appeal process work smoothly uh, with Valkyrie and Malice? Was there anything that you might tweak about the appeals process next season? So I think the big thing I didn't like with how the appeal there went is it just took too long. So as I said, we went from the appeal was declared to between sessions handling the discussion with the teams and then more waiting to talk to the judges because the judges have specific things they have to do between sessions. So it just drug on way too long. And that was something we even started talking about immediately following that appeal is, all right, how do we actually tighten up this process? Because we can't have that happen during the round of 16 or the round of eight, where the teams need a result basically immediately. So that's the big thing I would want to change with the appeals process is making it as fast and efficient as possible. Mm. Um, we've got a good functional question here from Nelly Vialibot Captain Saramalian, who asks, what level of masochism is required to want to become match steward? That's a very good question. So <laughs> for me, when I came back into doing robot combat, my goal wasn't necessarily to go out and win everything or go and compete at the highest level. I wanted to do whatever I thought was necessary to help the sport grow. And in this case, I think compared to me being a competitor on a team or, you know, going to big events and fighting there, I think the match steward role and then some of the stuff I've been doing with Norwalk are both things that are helping grow the sport beyond what just me being a competitor could do. So my goal in the long run is for robot combat to be a massive sport that's everywhere. Yeah. And this is one of those steps towards that. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Alex Pick, who runs Zane at NHRL, has a two-part question. Uh, question for Mike. Here, here it's question for Mike. If you were to bring Bombshell back, hypothetically, how would you approach a redesign of the robot? The first thing would be a small-scale prototype to really get things dialed in on brushless tech, because I think to be competitive with the style of robot I'd want to build, I'd have to go brushless everywhere, which means figuring out brushless drive chain, figuring out brushless lifters, all those sort of areas where the current brushless tech doesn't necessarily seem like the ideal option to get the power down. Like you've got more theoretical power, but getting that practical power to the end of the lifting arm or to the ground is a lot harder than big dumb brushless motor would be. Then once I kind of had my bearings on brushless, then it's figuring out how to scale all those concepts. One thing I found with Bombshell Season 2 is that a featherweight actually scales pretty well into a heavyweight when it comes to things like construction techniques, general proportions, material selection. It's just adjusted a bit, and it does tend to work. We saw that with Emulsifier this year where Emulsifier was a 30-pounder, and it became a 250-pounder by essentially doubling most of the dimensions and tweaking things to account for what parts are available at that scale. Yeah, absolutely. Alex has a spicier question for you. Um, <laughs> if appeals existed back then, how would the appeal have gone for Duck after the rumble? I don't think it would have helped Duck at all. And I say this as someone who, when that decision was announced, thought Duck was going to win it. But the judging criteria that year was fairly biased towards active weapons, and particularly towards damaging active weapons. And Duck 
just wasn't really able to do a whole lot with that. It was meant to sur out-survive the opponents. The problem is in a rumble, it has to out-survive five opponents instead of just one or two. And when you're trying to rely on everything else breaking, that's a lot more stuff that has to go wrong first. But that's part of why I got inv so involved in the judging criteria updates and have been pushing some of the ways things are interpreted now versus how they were back then, is I'm trying to pull some of that kinetic energy damage out of the judging criteria. So the damage criteria now is so much more heavily based on, you know, if you're not a damaging robot, but you don't break down, you're losing a 3-2 decision on damage at worst. Mm. Back in Season 3, that could potentially be a 5-0 loss on damage because the other bot did some damage and you didn't. Mm. And then you have to completely dominate aggression and control versus now where you just have to be in charge on aggression and control and you're still going to win. Right. Um, we've got a good question here from Chris Horry, who asks, how's the process going from bot builder to being a member of the production team? Was there anything that surprised you now that you can see behind the curtain that you can talk about? There wasn't too much that was a surprise just because I've been involved with a lot of events over the years. So I've seen behind the curtain on robot battles events, on NERC events, on robo games in the past. And a lot of the stuff is it isn't the same, but it's very similar. So you've got scheduling issues. You've got problems where this ran out or that ran out, or for some reason, somebody cut, you know, a power line. Like all of the issues still exist no matter which event it's at. And it's mostly adapting to the rigors of the filming schedule and making sure that match flow is nice and smooth. I don't think the teams realize how many people are necessarily involved in cycling fights compared to a normal event where you don't have someone who's actively maintaining a schedule and then dispatching a team of runners to go get all of the teams queued up to go to the battery tent to get batteries put in their robots to then go to the test box. So there's so many more moving pieces than is really obvious when you're a competitor where you're only focused on your bot or your opponent. We've got a kind of a no-win question here from Jake Merkus, so uh, feel free to just say no comment on this if you'd like. Uh, Jake asks, who is a bigger hassle to deal with, the drivers or the producers? It really depends on the day of the week. <laughs> uh, you, you, run into, you run into occasionally very conflicting needs, and hmm. how you deal with that is part of the job really yeah uh jake has another good question if you had the authority to do so what changes would you make to the battle box so this is probably going to be a little bit of a controversial one okay. but with all the drama surrounding the shelf i actually even made up a quick sketch of an alternative okay. and sent it to trey and greg and let them take a look at it so you take the existing shelf and you turn it into a triangular shelf. Okay. So you've just got the two screws going from that center point back to the wall. Right. So it sticks out most of the same distance. But then what you do is you cut a hole right at the tip of that triangular shelf, and you mount a massive vertical disc in it mm. that's coming out of the floor. Cool. The idea here being now all of your control bots have a way to do serious damage to an opponent if they can actually grab and control their opponent and bring them into this weapon wow that's amazing and that means every fight has damage potential that's awesome 
So like a I don't think they're ever going to do it, but yeah. like that's that's what I would do if I were given complete autonomy on what happens with the shelf. Or it's I'd get rid of it cuz I don't think it's really all that necessary, but if we got to keep the shelf make it so it can be a little more decisive versus just kind of interfere in fights. I I love your idea about putting a big weapon inside of the box because you know, like if, if you take a look at a control bot like Overhaul or um, or Claw Viper, they need to show an incredible amount of control in the match to bring their opponent over to a specific part of the box. And they have to make all of these design trade-offs around weight, you know, for strong drive, strong grabber, strong lifter, right? And um, if you can show that you can you can steer them directly into the this this very small, you know, space and score damage i think it's fantastic um yeah it'd be great and then think of the comedy of the moment where somebody is going for an opening second box rush across the arena yeah and they mess it up and veer off and run directly into the (laughs) vertical disc and get launched into the roof (laughs) i like that that's good um yeah like my um i i i like the shelf and what i actually want to do is i want to extend the shelf so that it's now 48 by 48, you know, like the shelf goes all the way across and, you know, like basically everything is the shelf like that. That would be great. You know, that's the uh, that's the future there, Mike. And then Big Dill can get stuck everywhere. <laughs> that's, that's good. Um, OK, we've got a good question here from Ian Miller, who runs Quicksand at NHRL. And he has an NHRL related question. Ian asks, should NHRL have appeals in your opinion? So I actually was asked this by some of the folks at NHRL a couple months back, and my answer was no. Okay. And it's not because I don't think an appeal system is a good idea. It's because I don't think the structure of the NHRL events would support it. Hmm. The appeals take too long when you're trying to get through dozens of fights in short succession. By the time you'd be able to get through an appeal, especially later in the tournament, the next fight's already supposed to have happened. We had the luxury of BattleBots where your next fight may be a day or two later, so if the appeal takes two hours, it doesn't matter. If you're in the quarterfinals at Norwalk and the appeal takes two hours, the tournament's over, everyone's packed up, and they're gone. Yeah, the pace is, is really different. Uh, speaking of NHRL, Ryan Hunter, who, run, who works at Pit Control at NHRL, he wants to know, how did you like your first NHRL experience in January? You were at NHRL uh, two months ago. Yeah, I was up there doing a lot of running around behind the scenes, kind of watching how things worked. So this kind of spiraled off of me being match steward at BattleBots is some of the folks wanted me to come up and just look for areas I thought there was room to improve. So came up, enjoyed the show, put together a big list of notes, and I'm already seeing some of the stuff we've talked about in the follow-on to that being rolled into what's happening for the upcoming event and I'm looking to be back up in May for that event to do cool. another round of this and see how things have gone. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really cool that like um, we have we're, we're starting to see a lot more people who are like you involved in both BattleBots and NHRL behind the scenes. Um, another key person on the team is Ricky Ricky Williams from Mammoth. Um, you know, he's building robots for Destructathon. He's competing on BattleBots. He is helping out. Um, at NHRL, you know, in an official capacity. I think it's really, really cool to see that. Um, Ryan's not asking this question, but I would love to get your thoughts on it. I mean, like, do you see 
a future for NHRL that um, that really excites you? Do you think there's a space for for NHRL um, to coexist with BattleBots? I mean, I'm assuming that you do, obviously, because you're yeah, you're working absolutely. with both. So, you know? like I was saying earlier, one of my goals is to make robot combat the biggest thing possible. Yeah, and me going up to Norwalk and working with NHRL on these events is about the biggest endorsement I can give for saying, I think what Norwalk Havoc is doing for the sport of robot combat is helpful to the sport. Yeah. That's why I'm there. I want to do what I can to help them grow. That way the NHRL becomes as big as possible. And I view it as kind of a symbiotic relationship. You've got BattleBots, which is a very public facing thing. It's on TV. It's the name people think of if they hear fighting robots typically right now. But there's not really a great path into BattleBots if you mm. haven't already been fighting robots for a long time. Yeah. Some teams have managed to do it, but it's basically going the hardest possible route. With NHRL, it is a much more accessible route into the sport, and it's growing constantly. Like I looked at the registration numbers for the March event, and that was mind-blowing. Yeah. But you've got this organization that's put together that's focusing on making sure the builders have a good experience that's got the infrastructure to really support the growth of the sport in a way that in the long term can be very helpful and potentially be life-changing for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, like I, we, we think and talk about this this subject all the time. Obviously, you know, we're, we're all involved in NHRL as well. And um, I, I feel like, like we are standing on the precipice of, of the sport gaining mainstream adoption where um, it is just as big as first or Vex, where there are combat robot boxes very close to your house. And there are events that are happening all the time. And there are, even um even like an easier entry into NHRL or the NHRL you know experience would be you know like maybe there are um, educational kits for kids maybe there's like a D2 league or something like that um where uh you know we have sportsman class robots for middle schoolers and then they graduate into full combat at some point um like i i really think that at more than at any other time in history, like we were poised for for that, if if we can if we can do it. Um, so yeah, it's it's cool to see that you share share that vision. Yeah, I think especially with the NHRL, there's so much potential for growth there. And when you mentioned kits, kind of fun little bit of trivia: the FingerTech Viper Lifter Kit. I actually helped design that whole setup. Cool. Way back in the day for FingerTech, so I, I'm very pro kit. Because I think there needs to be pathways into the sport for people that don't have a full workshop in their garage. Yeah. And people that don't necessarily have experience working with CAD programs that if you actually want to get it legitimately, you're spending thousands of dollars. Yeah. So these kits make up potential pathways for people that don't have the resources or don't have the infrastructure to get into the sport, to learn how these things work and potentially do some amazing things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we've got a good series of questions here from Mammoth team member Brandon Bennett Young, who runs Demi Gorgon at NHRL, who writes, Hey, Mike, always a pleasure to talk with you at events here and there. I'd love to visit DragonCon one year. 
Uh, I hear that you have some cool projects that you're working on, both robot and non-robot related. Could you tell us about some of those projects? All right. So I've got a good list going on right now. So the team, myself, Julie, and Erica, I don't know. I don't think you met Julie or Erica at, you might've met them at BattleBots. I don't remember which of you was in town when they were out there, but we've been building a bunch of stuff. So Erica has a little one pound robot called Fluffball, which she handmade and welded the aluminum chassis for it. And then we spin a little five inch disc at almost 250 miles an hour. So a little tiny one pounder at the BattleBots tip speed limit, because why not? Awesome. Then I've got a couple of different robots I'm working on right now. A 30 pounder that's kind of the modern take on the lifter version of Nix. So all brushless lifter Nix. I'm also working on a three pounder and a one pounder right now. I've also got my uh, 12 pound bot Eccentricity. It's a bot built entirely inside of a tube with 3D printed and hand forged parts on it. Because why not put the entire history of fabrication into one robot? Awesome. Uh, outside of that, do a lot of blacksmithing, working on some knife projects. I'm turning leftover pieces of my 15-pounder from BattleBots in 2009 into a little uh, karambit-style knife. So S7 tool steel karambit, that'll be a fun one. That S7 tool steel does not forge well. It Because it air hardens, it gets really hard really fast, even when you're up at like cherry red temperatures. So it just does not want to move well at all. So it's a bit of a be patient, it'll get there eventually sort of project. Very cool. Uh, Brandon goes on to ask, are you generally excited about the state of the sport today? You've been a great addition to BattleBots and your work in the community has been super helpful to people for years. So gauge your, I guess, current level of excitement about combat robotics as a sport. I'd say I'm pretty excited about it. So when I stopped competing back in 2018, that was probably the low point. Like I didn't even watch season four until after season five it aired. Mm. I I just stepped away entirely for a while. And coming back into things, the energy level and just seeing not only how things have grown, but where the potential growth is looking forward, it's been huge. And I'm really excited to be involved in the sport in the way I am these days. Because I can see it becoming a really, really big thing in not that much more time. That's cool. Um. Brandon asks, what's one building technique that you've learned that you think should be more widely used by your fellow builders? That's a tough one. So one of the things that I think has become somewhat more common that we did with Bombshell in Season 2 was some of the AR unibody stuff. And we've actually been playing around with a bit of that on the 30-pounder I'm working on. So the entire chassis is AR500, and then it's all puzzle pieced together into a single welded body. And one of the things I've seen is that people don't necessarily know for sure the best way to get that welded together. We decided to test out some ER307SI welding rod for this chassis. So ER307SI is a stainless steel welding rod welding to the carbon steel AR. And got the whole chassis together. There was a little bit of a warp when it was done getting welded. So decided to try to straighten this thing out. And clamped the chassis down, got a three-foot lever arm, and I was picking myself up off the ground trying to get that little bit of bend out of it because it was so springy and so flexible. So I think there's a lot to potentially find in some of these AR weldments that you can get better performance out of them than a lot of people expect. 
Cool. I also think prototyping is so essential when it comes to trying weird stuff. Mm. And the 30-pound class in particular, if your goal is eventually to build a heavyweight, is a really good scale to do it at. When we built Bombshell, the idea was, I want this thing to feel like my 30-pounder. So we scaled up proportions, layout, drive power, all to match with that. So I went from basically driving a 30-pounder for years and years to driving a heavyweight that felt like that 30-pounder that I've been driving for years. So there wasn't that learning curve of, this thing feels really different to me. Now I have to relearn how to drive it. So looking at stuff like that where you can learn at a smaller scale in a way that translates to a larger scale if you're trying to go up in weight class is really helpful. Now, speaking of, uh, Brandon asks, do you have a robot that you're considering bringing to Norwalk at some point in the future? At some point, maybe. Right now, my focus is more on the back-end side of things with NHRL. I'm going to have a 30-pounder. I'm going to have a 3-pounder. I'm not going to say it's not going to happen, but it'll be after I've kind of done what I'm doing now on more of the behind-the-scenes side of things. Because that's yeah. really where I think I can add the most value to Norwalk right now. Yeah. Now, uh, Brandon, as a builder, he has uh, uh, one last builder-related question. Do you think more robots should try modularity? No. (laughs) (laughs) I'll go into a little more detail. So I have this general approach of there's two types of modularity. There's little m modularity and big m modularity. And when I talk about little m modularity, I mean things like wedgelets and forks and plows and stuff where you're changing out subsystems to adjust the very nuanced parts of how the robots fight each other. Big M modularity is like we did with Bombshell, like they do with Ribot, where you're taking what the robot is at its core and changing it. So it's now no longer a vertical spinner, it's a horizontal spinner, it's a lifter, it's a hammerbot. Little M modularity is a great way to be very competitive. Big M modularity is a great way to have to make a lot of design sacrifices to be able to make these changes. And you're basically giving up every bit of that weight and structure that goes into allowing that modularity to your opponent if they've got a design that's going to be beneficial against either of your setups. Like if Ribot were built as specifically a horizontal, it would be a better horizontal. If it were built as specifically a vertical, it would be a better vertical. Being able to do both is a trade-off that means you're not going to be able to do it as well as if you dedicated all of that time, all of that energy into doing the specific weapon type. So it is going into robot combat and selecting the hard difficulty. And I give a lot of credit to the teams that still do it because it is a lot of work. Yeah. We uh, we got questions about modularity from James Williams, Sam Elliott, Robocast Co. Sam Elliott, um, Matt Lantry, who runs Fallout at NHRL, and uh, Luke Quintal. So um, you answered all of them. <laughs> so I'm just going to skip all of those questions. Um, Matt Lantry did have a second question, though, not about modularity. He wanted to know, out of curiosity, what did complete control damage when they roasted Bombshell? Oh, that that is that fight was. So much fun. I'm going to give a little bit of backstory leading into this fight, too, because there's some fun moments that never made it on camera. So, season two, we're pitted. We find another pit assignment stuff. We go do the match assignments for our first fight, and we find out we're fighting Complete Control, who is pitted immediately next to us. 
As far as I know, that wasn't intentional. So they've seen us just unpacking all of these different weapon modules and working on a little bit of everything. So we know about two days out from that fight that we're going to be fighting them first. And what we do is we then cycle every hour or two which weapon module we're working on. <laughs> so we're working on the vertical spinner, and now we're working on the hammer, and now we're working on the lifter. And these poor guys are switching gears on what they're working on to respond to the weapon we're now working on for at least a full day. And then while all this is going down, one of the members of the team goes out and gets a big cardboard box and some wrapping paper. Because if you remember in season one, they had the gift wrapped package for Ghost Raptor with the net in it. Yeah. So we'd already figured out what we were doing, but we just kept cycling weapons through, cycling weapons through. We're lined up last fight of the evening. At this point, we've sworn a blood oath to trade that there is nothing in the cardboard box. <laughs> because they did not want anything but air in that box after season one. And we're staged with the axe, with the present stuck onto our axe. And Complete Control goes to do their pre-fight checks, and suddenly there's a hissing noise. So I don't know if it's that something got cut or if they didn't hook up one of the lines, but they vented their entire propane tank, propane tank backstage during filming. Wow. This is like under the audience. Wow. So we have to basically get everyone out of the arena, postpone the fight till the next day. So that's all the lead up into that bit of fun. So we go into the fight, finally the next day, and they get us grabbed just perfectly to lift us up and aim that flame directly at the front center of our chassis. And because we've got all this modular setup, we've got you know, batteries on one side, receiver over with them, speed controllers on the other side. We had a PWM cable running across the robot, right at the front, protected by all the AR except there's a little air gap and the flames were kind of peeking over and rotating down and circulating inside that cavity. And it eventually melted one of the signal wires on a PWM cable. And that cut out our control of the drive system because it was shorting against the chassis. So the entire entirety of the damage from that fight was about three cents worth of wire and a bit of melted urethane. That's awesome. Wow. Man, what a great story. It took us less than five minutes to repair from, from that fight. <laughs> That's great. And most of that was just figuring out what the problem was. Yeah. Um, we've got an interesting question here from Kyle from Team Hypershock. Speaking of, I guess, configuration fakeouts, uh, Kyle asks, we see a lot of activity in the green room, including config fakeouts, tire warmers, and ESC chilling. I didn't know that any of this happened. Wow tire warmers all right what controls would you like to implement so these shenanigans don't threaten fight integrity so we actually were discussing this pretty recently on the BattleBot side of things one thing is i want to make sure we've got a very clear and defined process for when you're locked into a configuration like at this line whatever that line ends up being what you've got on the robot is all that can be on the robot that way you don't have you know, weird issues of people cycling stuff in and out and also having a way to basically say, hey, if you're delaying the fight, we're going to force you to lock in and whatever you lock in with then is what you have to run. Mm. Uh, tire warmers, I think totally fine. That's, you know, no different than you see in a lot of other professional motorsports where you're trying to just get things set up right. 
And I think they're kind of the corollary to the dry ice for the motor motor controllers, where you're trying to basically get your temperatures to where you want them to be at the start of the fight. And as long as all of that stuff is clearly differentiated from the stuff that goes into the arena and is clearly removed so you're not potentially adding extra weight, like you're not hiding extra weight and ice in your robot that wasn't part of your weigh-in. It should be just fine. And realistically, I don't care if you've got dry ice in your robot if you weighed in with it, because at that point, you're just going to lose the weight anyway during the fight. Right. And you're already under the limit. Yeah. But as long as it's handled in a way where it can't be used to bend the rules and get away with stuff that would otherwise get you disqualified, I think it's fine. That's funny. Like, if, if just a random person was to come up to me and say, you know, I suspect somebody is worming tires in the green room. I would guess it was Hypershock. You know, like they just look like tire warming kind of people. Like, is this happening a lot? Well, and so with Hypershock, part of why they would be one of the teams that would want to warm their tires is they're using go-kart tires. And those rubber compounds perform better and grip better at elevated temperatures. That's part of how that compound is designed to function. So they're actually getting more grip as the tires get warmer. So being able to start the fight at full temperature versus having to drift around for a minute and a half, getting your tires up to temperature is potentially a big performance benefit to them. Got it. All right. Well, I love it. I, I think I think we should warm all the tires. This is great. Um, all right. I'm going to turn you over to Kyle. Uh, Kyle Kroos, a uh, different Kyle. And um, he's going to ask you all of our weirdest and most wonderful questions. Kyle, take it away. Um, all right, so we're going to go into a question from Slamo Captain and friend of the podcast, Craig Danby, who wants to know, how's Walker Bombshell going along? Uh, unless you mean the, our dog Gadget, there isn't a Walker Bombshell. So he, he, he did look good when he was pretending to be part of the Slamo team a couple of years back. <laughs> um, all right, so speaking of new configurations of Bombshell, Dylan Price wants to know, how would you picture a match where the bots were boats? What would the battle boats version of bombshell look like? Asking for a friend. So I think if I were to do a boat bombshell, I'd go with something that was kind of catamaran style where you've got the potential for a very high agility drive system because bombshell was never about having the hardest hitting weapon. It was about delivering the weapon effectively. So agile drive with, a moderately strong weapon. I think kind of catamaran style where you can use the width of the robot to its advantage would be a core piece of that function. Fair enough, fair enough. All right, so uh, Sporganok Captain Will Respect, who helps organize Robot Ruckus, has an extraordinary question. Um, she says, how do you like your eggs? I uh, usually go with fried or over easy, though it's hard to argue with the uh, preparation you get for a good bowl of ramen. <laughs> fair um, all right, so another strange question from Fallout Builder Matt Lantry. Mike, how do you feel about hump day? Uh, Wednesdays aren't too bad. Most of my meetings are early in the week, so if I make it to Wednesday, I'm usually good for the rest of the week to just get stuff done. Fair, yeah. You don't live up to that commercial uh, at all. All right. Yeah, I, I don't run around talking to people about Wednesday. No, most people don't. It's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. Um, all right, Jonas Kurz has a question about gaming. Um, as a former member of Robot Arena 2 community, we've crossed paths before, 
How much did building in the game influence your design and engineering choices when it comes to building real bots? I think there's actually some bits of it that were an influence there. So one of the things I kind of gravitated towards even back in those days on for people that want to feel really old ace uplink <laughs> was high speed launcher bots. So sort of like the ideal bot for me back then would have been sort of the hybrid between Hydra's weapon on Claw Viper's drivetrain. Just turbo speed around the box. And as soon as you get under the opponent, send them flying across the arena. And I think that's kind of fed into the way I like to fight robots now, where it's high aggression, but focused more on control than pure damage output. Um, I kind of love that answer, actually. And uh, that's, I mean, I think that game did influence a lot of the, the current generation of builders in, in one way or another. Yeah, absolutely. And then you've got stuff like the uh, DSL mod, where there's so many replicas of real robots in there, including several of mine. And during one of the additions of that, I actually figured out a process to go from SolidWorks into Robot Arena 2, and that is the most tedious, miserable process. But it does work, and it uses like three different programs in the middle. So the real CAD for some of my robots eventually was translated into Robot Arena 2, along with, I believe, the actual shell model for Megabyte or Super Megabyte, one of the two. But there's several actual like team CADs, Electric Boogaloo as well, where their original CAD went from SolidWorks through 3D Studio Max, one other program at least, and into Robot Arena. So a lot of people out there have the real CAD for these robots and just don't realize it, <laughs> at least in some form. Oh, I kind of love that. All right. Um, thought-provoking question from Stephanie Sayers Farmer. Uh, robot, ba robot Battles comes with a fair amount of moxie. What's your favorite cheeky robot name? Oh, there's so many good ones uh, in Robot Battles over the years in particular. So I think Robot Battles and NHRL have a little bit of a... They're different sides of the same coin in that people love bringing really silly stuff to both of them. And we've had some names where it's trying to get Kelly, the MC and guy that founded Robot Battles and runs it, to say stuff and have to be very careful with his pronunciation. But a couple of years ago, we had a robot that I believe won the Dale Hetherington Innovation Award because of how odd it was. Uh, it was mostly made of wood. I think it may have had a lifter as its weapon, but it had a cam like camshaft wheels that were set sideways so it could strafe, but it would like hop strafe sideways. But the entire thing was made of plywood or other woods. So giant nerd convention, robot made of wood. What do you name it? I was Groot. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> All right. So we have uh, a nice little note from Monsoon team member Tim Rackers. Uh, get well soon, Tim. Um, one of the most genuine people in the sport. Our early breakfast chats were the highlight of the last series filming. Aw, that's so sweet. Th those were fun. So one of the things that came with being a match steward is I felt like I needed to be in the pits as much as I could. Because part of my job is to be there for the teams to help with whatever issues they got with production. So that meant I was usually getting over there 
by 8 a.m. most days. And as is probably not a surprise to you, the teams that tended to be awake at 8 a.m. were mostly the teams from the UK. So I'd get in, and part of my morning routine became go grab some breakfast, wander over to the monsoon pit, chat about the morning, what the plan for the day was, what's going on. And it was just kind of a nice, pleasant way to start the day. That's nice. All right, so let's wrap up this interview with a series of thought-provoking questions from Horizon team member and BattleBot superfan Mary Catherine Carr. Uh, this is a weird one. If Bombshell and Slamo had a baby, what would the bot be named, and what kind of bot would it be? Oof. So if Bombshell and Slamo had a baby, that's kind of what Craig's working on right now, I think. I don't know if you've seen uh, some of the recent stuff he's been working on, but he's very much got a uh, upgraded Slamo he's working on that feels very bombshell lifter module like. Ooh, that's fun. No, I haven't seen what he's been working on. I want to check that out. Uh, I th- I don't know exactly what you'd call it, but I think given the kind of military theming with bombshell and Craig's being from the UK, you'd have to name it after some sort of warplane from the Royal Air some RAF, something like that. Uh, I would love that, actually. That would be really fun. I think lean hard into the like World War II UK fighter bomber vein for theming and naming. Yes, absolutely. Everybody wearing lots of cool fighter jackets and uh, uh, like captain's hats. I love it. All right, so this is a, a really deep cut question. So answer this as deeply or, uh, or as, as shallowly as you would like, I suppose. To turn BattleBots into your ideal competition, what would you change? I think they're doing a lot of what I would like to see changed, where there's a path onto the show that isn't just the application process. Because there's so many ideas and so many teams where what you can put into an application doesn't necessarily get everything across. So being able to use the Destructathon stuff and the Proving Grounds as part of that as a pathway onto the show, I think, is a big part of that. I would also really, really like to see the weapon rules change to allow Melty Brains for some mysterious reason that definitely isn't at all related to like a Project Liftoff sort of bot that really has impressed me recently. Um, yeah, I, you're not the only person from BattleBots uh, that has expressed an interest in uh, projects lifting off. I'm I'm not sure why that is. Um, but yeah, I'd love to see. I mean, everybody would love to see that. Absolutely. And Greg's even said that he would probably bend the rules for that. So there you go. Uh, I mean, you don't need to bend the rules if you just change them. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah, not that Greg has unilateral power to bend the rules, of course, but uh, he, he, it would get his vote, to say the least. Yeah, I, I think that's one of those things where, you know, there's... Several of us now that have seen Liftoff and seen its performance at NHRL, that I think we can at least begin making that argument that you can actually build a Melty Bot that is controllable and is destructive, and that meets both the mobility and the weapon requirements. So we'll see what happens, but I feel like there's the potential. I can't imagine Trey looking at some of the uh, the footage from Project Liftoff and thinking that that would be good for the arena, but um, but yeah, everybody else would want to see that. For I mean, sure. it's no worse for the arena than Ripperoni. That's <laughs> probably true. <laughs> I don't know. Ripperoni doesn't frisbee around the box the same way. It's a uh, it's a whole different thing. Um, it does do right. some nice pirouettes, though. 
It does. It does beautiful. It's a beautiful dancer, all things considered. It really is. Um, all right. So lastly, from her, from Mary Catherine Carr, a big resounding thank you to yourself and all of Chaos Core uh, for being absolutely amazing humans. I can't name a single builder who has who wasn't just completely stoked to see you last season. Um, Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we can't wait to see you again at BattleBots and NHRL soon. Um, this has just been awesome. Thank you so much for indulging all of our, uh, you know, five series old questions and all of the, the up-to-date stuff with what you're doing now with BattleBots. You're the best. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a great time. And yeah, the reception from the builders this season was really heartwarming. You know, to be away from the sport for as long as I was, come back in and be welcomed with as open of arms as I was welcomed back with was really nice. After the break, we'll return with this week's installment of Robots Around the World. Welcome back from the break. Time for Robots Around the World. This week, we're heading to Paris Fashion Week. Where, for the very first time, robots from Boston Dynamics shared the stage with human models. Qu'est-ce que c'est? <laughs> the robots danced to the show's music and at one point dramatically pulled off one of the model's jackets, revealing the dress she was wearing underneath. I hope that was pre planned. Sacre bleu. <laughs> Are they French? I guess. Yeah, Paris, Paris, right, right, right. No, oh yeah, no, it's Paris, Pennsylvania. No, that's that where I... they hold the Fashion Week. I know, I know that I just said the word Paris, but I was thinking New York. Anyway, the clothing brand that hired the robot said they were trying to show that quote man and machine can coexist in harmony. Who wants this? Who wants this? Who is asking for man and machine to coexist in harmony at the fashion shows? Who's asking for this? Don't force this on us. I I mean I I kind of think it's cool. I kind of I kind of Kyle. I mean, I didn't even really think about this, but let's say in eight to ten years, uh, you know, uh, the elderly and other humans and and people that have uh, greater needs for things to be facilitated for them have uh, you know these these robots that are uh, that are there to make my tapioca and to to make sure I don't fall in the tub. Um, well, why but that? like, what about robot fashion? Are they just going to be naked all the time? <laughs> These were the dogs too. These weren't even uh, the like humanoids. There were no atlases. It was apparently just the dogs. Oh. I, I know, but I put my dogs in little tiny sweaters in the winter. Like what? What's like? What's the future of robot fashion? Wow! Oh, this is interesting. Yeah, it's like several models of the spot line, the little dog lines that they had, and she's like uh, interacting with it at the end, and it, it uses that weird, creepy hand thing to grab her jacket and pull it off to reveal the dress underneath. I imagine that like you can use robot clothes to kind of let's say you have you know multiple. Um, you know, robots kind of all in one space, but maybe they all have their own personas or own personalities built in or whatever. I don't know. You got to dress them differently, right? So, like, I think, Chris, you're onto something that robot fashion. We haven't even begun to think about it. Okay. Are there patents to be had here? Maybe. All right. Don't listen to this part. 
Plus, nobody <laughs> wants to see their robot junk. <laughs> <laughs> Who's putting junk in the robots? <laughs> yeah, they don't. They don't need that. What? What are you talking about? <laughs> what do you think they're made on an assembly line? Oh, <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> We're going to have to have a conversation about this later. Nobody ever taught me the the birds and the um uh robo bees. The the yeah, I was going to say the robot mosquitoes. <laughs> the birds and the robot mosquitoes. Okay, so I'm watching this video clip of this happening and it's really weird. Cuz it looks like her hand is like in the grasp of the robot, but it had to be just kind of like the folds of the jacket. That could have gone real wrong. Like, what if that thing pinched down on her actual hands? Oh, and then it gives her the jacket after the fact to walk off with. Oh, nice. Wow. Um, I used to do, uh, like, so my old job was in the live event industry, and we would do, like, lighting and scenic for uh, fashion shows. And I'll bet uh, if these things were, like, on loan from... um, on loan from the robot company that they were like they made things less expensive because there's no set pieces here there's just a back wall some pretty generalized lighting and then all these robots it looks like there's three walking robots and then there's like four of them that are legless and just kind of like laying there with yeah no uh, we were just looking at it and i wonder why there were so many you uh you run them by the half dozen <laughs> you really no <laughs> <laughs> Kyle, don't believe a single word that comes out of this man's mouth. <laughs> Not one. It's kind of cool. I appreciate Coppertini doing something, or, or what is it, Copperini, uh, doing something weird and different. You know, good for them. Uh, well, now we know that a uh, man and machine can coexist together. Yes, but can they look fabulous? <laughs> uh, yeah, these all look fabulous. Yeah. I gotta say, they probably should have. They should have painted the dogs a different color. The yellow is kind of gross. Yellow is not high fashion. I'm pretty sure. No, and this entire line is all like muted colors. It's all like blacks and grays with the with these bright yellow robots. It looks really weird. Like it's not even an accent piece. It just doesn't make sense. I feel like I don't know. I'm watching this clip, and I couldn't even tell you what the person's wearing. I'm just focused on the freaking robots. I mean, when you when you buy uh, the newest phone of whatever make and model you like uh within two days of it coming out there's like 900 companies that are just cranking out phone cases for it um maybe uh maybe eventually that's going to be the deal with with bots it's like oh i have the model three spot and i can go on aliexpress and just like buy probably a you know very poorly crafted snap on (laughs) set of uh you know, enhancers, visual enhancers. Ooh. And uh, now my spot is, uh, you know, uh, Pokemon themed. <laughs> I kind of love that, actually. Oh, look, and then in this other clip, one of them's just handing them their purse. Here you go, robot. Hold this for me. I'm, I'm Lindsay's purse robot. Oh, I don't think I've ever asked you to hold my purse. Or right, maybe that's a lie. I have to hold it so you don't knock over displays. <laughs> that part is true. <laughs> that part's true. I'm clumsy. <laughs> yeah, this is really weird. I don't know how I feel about it, but it's making us talk about it. So I support robots in fashion, I guess. 
Yeah, I guess I've never heard of Copperini before this, but now I know them because they've done this stunt. So good for them. Um, <laughs> and now I'm thinking about what um, motif my uh, robot would be dressed as. Mm. I think steampunk. Yes. Or is that too on the nose? Uh, no, that's it's nose adjacent. Yeah. It's nose adjacent. It's on the druid. It's going to be a druid. Sissy that robot walk. <laughs> well, that's about it for us today. We want to thank Nicole for doing such a great job uh, editing our episodes. We love you, Nicole. And we'll be back in your feed next week with another mystery guest. We'll see you then, folks. Bye. Make it happen, robots. <laughs> <laughs> Make it work. Robot <laughs> <laughs>